Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 1918-2008, is the author of modern classics such as The Gulag Archipelago, The First Circle and Cancer Ward. Born and raised in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution, he served as an artillery officer in the Red Army during World War II. In 1945, he was arrested by Russian counterintelligence while in active duty in East Prussia. He had committed the crime of criticising Stalin in private letters to a childhood friend. He served eight years in various prisons, to an exile and almost died from an undiagnosed cancer. During those ten years, he came to understand communism's inherently dehumanising nature, found much of the materials around which he would build his future novels, and regained his faith as a Russian Orthodox Christian. In 1962, he was allowed to publish his first novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. However, after Khrushchev's deposition in 1964, the Soviet authorities put a stop to the publication of his other writings, and in 1974 expelled him. Once in the West, he would finally receive the Nobel Prize for Literature he had been awarded four years earlier. Initially lionised in the West, he soon fell out of favour in some quarters. It became apparent that his opposition to communism and the Soviet regime did not make him, as many had wrongly supposed, a secular liberal and progressive. While he appreciated the valid aspects of Western political culture, such as the rule of law, and local self-government, he criticised the rise of secular humanism. In 1994, he returned to Russia where he died in 2008. In this interview, Daniel J. Mahoney will explain the significance of Solzhenitsyn by taking us through his pick of five of the author's works. Daniel J. Mahoney is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, Professor Emeritus of Assumption University. His recent books include the Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage and Moderation, published by Encounter Books, Recovering Politics, Civilization in the Souls, Essays on Pierre Manon and Roger Scruton, published by St. Augustine's Press, and The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. On the subject of this interview, he has written Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology, and The Other Solzhenitsyn, Telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, published in 2020. With Edward E. Erickson Jr., he's the author of The Solzhenitsyn Reader, New and Essential Writings, 1947-2005. to Professor Mahoney, welcome. Thank you very much, Father Farrell. What should be added to the preceding biographical sketch of Solzhenitsyn? Well, I think your sketch was quite good. Um, I would say just a few things. One... Um, Solzhenitsyn, as you noted, was born in 1918, which means he lived his entire life under the shadow of Bolshevism and the Bolshevik Revolution. But he was raised by his mother, who was a widow. His father had died in a hunting accident while his mother was pregnant with him. And uh, his aunt Irina, he was raised in a Christian family, an Orthodox family, and he remained, I think, within that milieu right up until his 
uh, teenage years when the pressure of Soviet education became overwhelming. I remember somewhere Solzhenitsyn writing about his his humiliation and looking back and or his shame and looking back and remembering having torn a crucifix from his neck when he was in high school. Uh, but uh, there was something in Solzhenitsyn uh, in uh, the chapter called The Blue Caps in the first volume of the Gulag Archipelago. He talks about how recruiters from the NKVD came to his high school. And he said, you know, at the time he was a convinced Marxist, an enthusiast for the revolution. But he said something held him back. Something filled him with revulsion. And he says these were the products of the copper coins left to us from our forebears at a time when good and evil was not relative. So Solzhenitsyn's break with communism, you know, the scales of ideology falling from his eyes in prison and camp didn't come out of nowhere. There were um, uh, there was there was something in his soul and something in his background that prepared him, I think, to engage in this spiritual break and spiritual ascent from communism. And let me just add a little bit about um, the latter point of the biography that you had sketched. I think it's often um, often misstated that Solzhenitsyn thought Western democracy and Soviet communism were equally bad and that kind of nothing of the sort. As you pointed out, Solzhenitsyn, well, he criticized a soulless legalism as uh, as dehumanizing. He always believed that the rule of law was an indispensable pillar and foundation of a free and decent society. Uh, secondly, he wrote very uh, eloquently in many different writings in the last 20 or 30 years of his life about the importance of building democracy from the bottom up. He was impressed by the forms of local self-government. He saw it work in Switzerland and New England. And he thought, you know, you can't just after 70 years of communism, you can't just introduce plebiscitary democracy, parliamentary elections. You have to form habits of citizenship and self-government. And uh, he did his best to encourage Russians to move in that direction without, I think, great success. But nonetheless, his words on that subject remain very, very important. I would add two other things. One central to Solzhenitsyn's message uh, in his prose writings, but it's also, I think, apparent in his fiction, too, is an appeal to what he called repentance and self-limitation. Uh, you know, uh, when people criticize Solzhenitsyn as being anti-Western or anti-democratic, they, they forget that Solzhenitsyn was appealing to voluntary self-limitation, you know, a freedom that acknowledged limits, a freedom that rejected anthropocentric humanism, as he called it, the denial of a higher sphere above the human will. So Solzhenitsyn was not an advocate of theocracy or coercion, but rather he thought there could be no freedom in human dignity without voluntary self-limitation. And repentance Repentance, of course, is a great theme, uh, Christian theme. Uh, for Solzhenitsyn, it had political import, too, because, you know, certainly after the 70-year period of Bolshevism, there needed to be deep soul-searching. 
And Solzhenitsyn thought it was a mistake for people to see themselves merely as victims and not to see themselves as important respects participating in the ideological lie, as he called it. And I think Solzhenitsyn also, as a human being in Christian thought, repentance was, uh, you know, uh, he, he rejected the Marxist notion, as he put it in From Under the Rebel, that uh, freedom meant succumbing to the yoke of necessity. He, he rejected the Enlightenment view, or at least one Enlightenment view, that freedom was simply, you know, following one's self-interest. And he wanted to reconnect freedom to these deeper spiritual roots, which included a recognition of um, of of uh, this of liberty under God or liberty under God and the law, but also uh, a penitential soul, a soul, uh, souls who use their freedom in a spirit of responsibility. And I would just on that note, I would add um, the theme of conscience. Solzhenitsyn always said, uh, well, he says one character, an uh, important character in the, in the first circle says, you know, I used to think we only had one life, you know, that kind of Epicurean view. And he said, but I came to realize we only have one conscience, you know, so the con- conscience authentically understood, not as a synonym for subjectivism or doing what you feel is right, but uh, fidelity to conscience in the deep and abiding sense, Solzhenitsyn thought was the hall- hallmark of a human being. Did you ever meet Solzhenitsyn? Uh, no. Uh, I had some correspondence with Solzhenitsyn, and Solzhenitsyn um, kindly wrote a endorsement for the uh, Solzhenitsyn reader, of which I was co-editor. But I must say, I did meet on several occasions Natalia Solzhenitsyn, uh, Solzhenitsyn's second wife, who was very much his intellectual literary and spiritual partner and editor um and uh she's a wonderful woman and continues his work especially the 30 volumes of of the collected works in russian and of course mrs solzhenitsyn and uh two of solzhenitsyn's three sons ignat the musician and stepan who now lives in russia they uh they're very close friends and we've collaborated on many projects and you know Mrs. Solzhenitsyn did ask me uh, to write the introductions to the two volumes of Solzhenitsyn's memoirs about his years in the West. And the Solzhenitsyns as a whole gave us immense uh, enthusiastic support as we worked on collecting and collating the pieces in the Solzhenitsyn readers. So I have, a, I think, a, a close relation. I've been to Cavendish several times where the Solzhenitsyns lived, and uh, which is really wonderful to see. Uh, because uh, you have a much better sense. This was the year. These were the years, 1976 to 1994, where Solzhenitsyn lived and wrote in the West, in Vermont. And uh, rather than being this, you know, sort of arm camp you would read about in the press, it was a lovely home in a very natural setting in a small town of Vermont, where Solzhenitsyn and his family got along very well with their neighbors. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of nonsense written in the press, but that tends to happen to people who um, challenge the uh, dominant spirit of the age. What drew you to study Solzhenitsyn? Well, I have to say, I'm 63. I was born in 1960. And I, you know, when I was a young, I was rather intellectually precocious. I read a lot of 
serious fiction and nonfiction as a teenager. And um, I think I did my eighth grade report. We had to pick a, at my Catholic school, we had to pick a major writer and do a report on them. And I did my report on Solzhenitsyn. So I read, to the best of my ability, of course, works like the Gulag Archipelago when they came out from under the rubble, the manifesto for a Christian manifesto for post-communist Russia, one of the books Solzhenitsyn edited and published um, in 1975, 74 in the Russian. Uh, so um, I always had an interest in Russia, but, you know, I'm a political scientist. I'm not a, a, a Russianist in the narrow sense, you know, uh, but I was appalled by the nonsense that was written about Solzhenitsyn. I was appalled by the lack of care in approaching his work, the, the cliches, the the uh, you know, just the same old half-truths and distortions recycled. Uh, and so I decided to write a book on Solzhenitsyn that became uh, 2001's The Ascent from Ideology. And I must say the the reception uh, of the the reception of the book from people who genuinely knew and appreciated Solzhenitsyn's work was extremely positive, including the Solzhenitsyn family, and that made possible all the work of collaboration later on. But uh, it was just Solzhenitsyn did an interview with David Aikman, a very talented journalist who. Uh, you may years ago Time Magazine was a serious magazine and. Uh, uh, David Aikman covered uh, things from Russia and China. He did an, an interview in 1989 with Solzhenitsyn, and Solzhenitsyn said about these things that were said about him, they never give any quotes. <laughs> and it struck me as I embarked on, I mean, I've done a lot, as, as the titles of my book suggest, I haven't dedicated myself exclusively to writing about Solzhenitsyn, but Engaging Solzhenitsyn's work has been a major part of my own intellectual itinerary. And um, um, it began, I think, simply from the, the, the fact that there was a need. And, uh, and uh, you know, but I, I, I you know, my books, uh, uh, The Ascent from Ideology has been published in French by Fayard, which is the ma major French publisher that publishes all of Solzhenitsyn in French. And both of my Solzhenitsyn books have been translated into Romanian and some other languages. So the reception has been, um, you know, very good in the sense that there was a crying need, I think, for a genuinely thoughtful and sympathetic engagement, an effort to understand Solzhenitsyn as he understood himself which is, uh, you know, the postmoderns and others don't believe in that principle. So they just, there was this woman named Elizabeth Kriza. She's a Danish scholar, hates Solzhenitsyn. You know, he's homophobic. He's transphobic. He, I don't know, Solzhenitsyn would know what trans meant, you know. But uh, uh, um, uh, her complaint was, she said, we need to bring Solzhenitsyn in from critical exile. And what she meant by that was bring queer theory gender theory, postmodernism, and all of that to bear. In other words, to mutilate Solzhenitsyn in the name of ideological critique. So thankfully, uh, while there are many silly things written about Solzhenitsyn, he has not yet been subject to that kind of, you know, monstrously uh, tendacious scholarship. Um, and and um, 
uh, why why anyone would waste their time trying to uh, you know understand Solzhenitsyn in light of those concerns I don't know so anyway I think my work has filled a very important void and it um, um, and I certainly have deepened in my understanding and appreciation of Solzhenitsyn over the years. You've mentioned some of the criticisms of Solzhenitsyn. Some question Solzhenitsyn's reliability as a historian. What is your assessment of his non-fiction writings in history? I think The Red Wheel, his um, magisterial multi-volume work on the um, a work of literature and dramatized history, that begins with August 1914, but has flashbacks to the Stalipin era. It's an effort to explain in a very non-Marxist way how Bolshevism came to Russia. And uh, it wasn't uh, historically necessitated, but many mistakes were made, uh, many opportunities were lost. Russia's greatest statesman, Pyotr Stalipin, who was a tough-minded reformer and constitutionalist, who was hated both both by the revolutionary left, but also by the reactionary time servers in the czar's court. He was assassinated in 1911, and that destroyed, I think, the possibility of a genuine statesman leading czarist uh, Russia forward, perhaps avoiding World War One, and certainly um, conserving while reforming, in the words of Edmund Burke. I think, uh, I think Solzhenitsyn did him impeccable research about the February Revolution. A lot of people who don't like the Red Wheel haven't read it. It's marvelously written. In March 1917, the street scenes where he he captures the behavior and thinking of a revolutionary mob and where he shows the giddiness of middle class and upper middle class St. Petersburgers for uh, the uh, for um, revolution, you know, not thinking about the consequences. He, um, I, I think historically it's um, very faithful, very, very carefully researched. Um, and I was, I was about to say, I think some people who don't like the book don't like uh, the message. And the message is that it was the February revolution, the so-called democratic revolution that um, destroyed authority, weakened the armed forces, in, in time of war and made uh, the Bolshevik revolution. You know, the Bolsheviks had 40,000 members in their party in the beginning of 1917. They were a tiny movement, but they were able to take advantage of, uh, well, the, fa- the increasing failure of the war, of course, World War, the Russian end of World War One, but mainly just the power vacuum, the lack of legitimate authority uh, the, of the provisional government. Solzhenitsyn says somewhere, that uh, the provisional government governed for a total of minus two days. You know, in other words, you know, you, uh, uh, democracy needs authority and anarchy just paves the way for either civil war or tyranny. And in the case of the February Revolution, it ultimately paved the way for both. Um, the Gulag Archipelago, it's not a work of history, but I think it's a historically accurate work. Um, it's based on Solzhenitsyn's own experience in the camps. It's based on official Soviet documentation that he had access to. It's based on the testimony of 257 people. If you look at the most recent abridgment, the authorized abridgment done by Ed Erickson with Solzhenitsyn in 1984, 
There's also a 500 um, an abridgment available for Russians done by Natalia Solzhenitsyna. But in any case, if you look at the um, uh, appendix to that, you have a list of all the people, people Solzhenitsyn spoke to or whose memoirs they read, who wrote letters to him. Um, and I think Anne Applebaum, in her introduction to 2007 introduction to the abridgment, still available from Harper and Row, says the the essentials are over at the whole Gulag experience, the 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 larger analysis and critique of ideology. Of course, there's the issue of how many people were imprisoned and killed by the Bolshevik regime, and that's a very contested question. Uh, Solzhenitsyn gives high numbers, uh, but um, he's including not some people who died in the gulag uh, or in prison, he's including victims of famine, people who were shot, people who died in the Civil War. And of course, you know, we always hear 27 million Soviets died during World War II. Yes, but so many died in large part because Stalin saw no value in human life. He just threw Ivan after Ivan after Ivan on the front, you know. And uh, so, um, but, but, um, that, that, I think, would be the only contested question. And Solzhenitsyn never claimed to be authoritative on that. Um, you know, did the Soviet regime in the Lenin and Stalin period, was it responsible for the death of 20 million people, 35 million people, 45 million people? That's a uh, disputed question. But Anthony Beaver and others have recently argued that up to 18 million people perished during the revolution. And many people died of famine as a result of war communism and accompanying disease. None of this would have happened without the Bolshevik Revolution. But uh, no, I mean, Solzhenitsyn is not a professional historian, but I can assure you that he approached the historical dimensions of his work with great concern for verisimilitude. He spent much time in the archives of the Hoover Institution, for example, had, had access to um, material that very few people would have had material access to. So, um, no, I think um, that, that that claim is made, but I, and it's made on the internet by fools. But uh, I think it happens not to be true. Are there any special reasons why Catholics should read Solzhenitsyn? Uh, well, because Solzhenitsyn is one of the great men of the 20th century. He 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 embodied that quality of soul that the classics called megalosukia greatness of soul, but always with a Christian emphasis on repentance, self-limitation, and deference to the creator God. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, today, um, the sectarian differences mean far less. I mean, the real divisions in the churches are between those who remain faithful to the apostolic inheritance and the moral law and a substantial and non-relativistic understanding of the of conscience and the drama of good and evil in the human soul and those who believe in uh, you know that everything is historically and culturally determined that the faith changes that the holy spirit is coextensive with the zeitgeist sexual or otherwise uh so uh uh, yeah, and uh, um, I think some people, too, also, um, you know, we can overdo the Russian Orthodox attribution to Solzhenitsyn. Yes, he, 
he returned to the faith of his fathers and he was a serious Russian Orthodox. He was not at all sectarian. He wasn't like Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky hated the Poles and thought, Dostoevsky was a great thinker and I can't think of anything more important than reading in the present moment, uh, the possessed or the demons, but Dostoevsky had a lot of pet peeves and, uh, you know, we re you read the Grand Inquisitor in Brothers Karamazov and you see, you know, he had many prejudices about the Catholic Church. Solzhenitsyn didn't have any of them. You know, he said when he, uh, in an interview with Yanis Sapiets in February 79, when asked about the relatively new Polish Pope, he said, um, words fail me, it's a gift from God. And um, he, uh, he met uh, John Paul II on the 15th anniversary of John Paul II's pontificate on October 15th, 1993, he had a three-hour uh, private meeting with the Pope. I think that's quite significant that Solzhenitsyn was traveling through Western Europe sort of saying his goodbyes before he would return to post-communist Russia in May of 1994. But the fact that his... Uh, Travels in Western Europe uh, included a meeting with John Paul II was quite significant. And in his memoirs between two milestones, he speaks about his admiration for John Paul II. Uh, so I think uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, not only diagnoses um, the tragedies and worse that flow from rejecting the sovereignty of God and the moral law, but he also... Um, he also recovers in a work like the Gulag Archipelago, the, the great drama of good and evil in the human soul. And so I think as an anthropologist of the soul, as a critic of, you know, the terrible mendacity that informs the, the Manichaeanism and mendacity that informs totalitarian ideology um, and his recovery of, a, of the soul and its possibilities of ascent, you know, the need to turn away from a merely hedonic and materialist calculus. I think Solzhenitsyn is unsurpassed. So um, I think uh, Catholics uh, have every reason to read and admire and learn from Solzhenitsyn. Your first recommended book is the comprehensive anthology that you edited with Edward E. Erickson Jr., the Solzhenitsyn reader new and essential writings, 1947 to 2005. Are there any chapters that you'd recommend in particular from this book? Yes. Among other things, by the way, this book, it's a commented anthology, so we have a quite substantial portrait of Solzhenitsyn's life and thought. We also have introductions to each of the selections, some, as in the case of the Gulag and Ar Archipelago and the Red Wheel are quite substantive. Others for shorter pieces are one page or so. So I think it'd be very, the, the, all of that is very helpful to the reader. Yeah, this is the most comprehensive collection in any language of Solzhenitsyn's writing. Stepan Solzhenitsyn told me that he calculated that 80% of Solzhenitsyn's writings are here in one. Um, for example, early on, we have an excerpt from the trail, Dorshenka, the, the road or the way or the trail. It's a autobiographical poem that Solzhenitsyn wrote in the camp with no pen and in camp with no pen and paper. 
only using a rosary some Lithuanian friends had given him as a mnemonic device. And um, it's 7,000 words. And it's an account of his own intellectual and spiritual odyssey from Marxism to uh, through the war, through through all, through all of it. It's really indispensable. And the only other part of it that it appeared in English was um, uh, uh, we published a section called Besed. A very dramatic section was uh, the section called Prussian Nights. Um, there are three poems uh, from prison camp and exile, including a better translation of Akathistas, the Song of Praise. That appears in the ascent in the central section of the Gulag, the soul and barbed wire. And it's the great song of praise where Solzhenitsyn explains quite dramatically and movingly his loss of faith and his recovery of faith. God of the universe, I believe again, you are always with me. It's very beautiful, very substantive, very important um, statement. And I think a great work of literature. Uh, the short stories uh, include Matriana's Home, which is a probably Solzhenitsyn's best story, story of a Russian peasant woman who was very dedicated to others, but very un-Soviet, you know. She was a product of the old Russia, a little bit superstitious, but very, very Christian. The one person without whom the, la the, the, the land or the village cannot survive, as Solzhenitsyn says, paraphrasing the book of Genesis at the end of the piece. Um, there's an excerpt from The Oak and the Calf, Solzhenitsyn's memoir about beginning as an underground writer. There are substantial excerpts from the First Circle and Cancer Ward and the Gulag Archipelago, as well as uh, important, I would say representative and important chapters from the Red Wheel from August 1914, November 1916, March 1970, April 1970. I would say those who really want to discover Solzhenitsyn's other great work should read the Red Wheel, all the volumes as they come out from University of Notre Dame Press. But those who want to read a representative sample of the best and best written and most revealing chapters uh, should, and, and many on, on, on Christian themes, a dialogue between Sonia Lashenitsyn and Father, uh, uh, Father Severin, who about pacifism and Tolstoy and uh, can you fight for your country if you're Christian? Uh, that's all here. And um, I, again, for the, the busy reader who wants to get a taste of the Red Wheel, that's the place to go. I would say that um, maybe the two most important sections, the essays and speeches, um, the Nobel Lecture, very beautiful text, uh, Solzhenitsyn says there's two kinds of writers, the writer who thinks of himself as self-expressive, you know, inventing, creating as an, as an autonomous being, and the humble apprentice under God's heaven who tries to realistically convey the nature of reality and the drama of the soul. That's their repentance and self-limitation in the life of nations. The great text, Live Not by Lies, which is quite relevant for our situation today, the Harvard Address, the 1983 Templeton Address for Progress and Religion, where Solzhenitsyn probably lays out his convictions in the most satisfactory way. 
the final section is called miniatures 1958 to 63 1996 to 1999 these are very beautiful meditative reflections kokotki in russian tinies miniatures sometimes in english they're called prose poems they are their reflections on nature on death on the human soul he wrote some in russia in the 60s and 50s and others when he returned home um they also include two of his prayers the prayer he wrote on really becoming a very famous writer with the worldwide publication of one day and uh, and then a prayer for russia from 1997 when russia russia came out from under the rubble of communism in a very bad way and Solzhenitsyn was deeply worried that the country was country and culture were in the process of collapse so he wrote a prayer that he said every night called a prayer for russia and it's a very very beautiful prayer and um, the prayers i think illustrate uh, a personal dimension of solzhenitsyn's faith that certainly his faith isn't implicit in everything he did but uh, uh, those those prayers are both moving they're works of literature too but they're for admirers of solzhenitsyn they're a glimpse into his own soul and his own reaching out to the goodness and grace of God. So that's the Solzhenitsyn reader. The second book is probably Solzhenitsyn's best-known one, the Gulag Archipelago. There are various editions of this work. Which one do you recommend? Well, for those who want the whole experience, the three volumes are available in print from Harper uh, Collins. Volumes one, two, and three, but they come to 1,500, 1,600 pages. Uh, so ideally, one should read that. But I think the abridgment, the authorized abridgment that Ed Erickson did in cooperation with Solzhenitsyn that was first published in 1985, it's very deftly done. It includes all the essential sections and at least parts of the abridged sections. It's... Uh, it uh, it gives the reader a very satisfactory sense of the whole. Uh, it allows the busy and preoccupied reader not just to read 100 pages of volume one and never get to some really important stuff, but to get a sense of the whole, engage the whole in a meaningful and satisfactory way. Um, I would say if a reader has limited time, Read the chapter in the abridgment. I recommend you'd have to get it from Amazon.uk. You might think you can probably get it from Amazon uh, in America, but at a little bit of a delay. The 2018 version of the abridgment, which has all sorts of ancillary material, including information on the people Solzhenitsyn consulted with, the 257. But there is a magisterial introduction by Jordan P. P. Peterson on the significance, the permanent significance of the book. Um, but I would say for the for the busy, preoccupied reader, read the chapter on the blue caps. The blue caps was a colloquial name for the organs, for the secret police. Um, why did men succumb to that kind of evil? Why did Solzhenitsyn resist becoming a blue cap even when he was um, a young, dedicated Marxist ideologue 
what is the specific source of ideology? So as an instance says, Shakespeare's evildoers stopped at a half a dozen cadavers because they had no ideology. How does ideology provide a justification for unprecedented tyranny and terror? And I would suggest reading the section called The Soul and Barbed Wire. The chapter, The Ascent, is a beautiful account. As Solzhenitsyn puts it, uh, one has to make a decision. One had to make a decision in the camps. It's, it's perfectly necessary and salutary to do your best to survive. But he says every prisoner had to decide whether they would survive at any price. And as Solzhenitsyn puts it, at any price meant at the price of others. But Solzhenitsyn argues so beautifully that once one rejects uh, survival at any price, once one chooses the path of fidelity to truth and conscience, the possibilities of spiritual ascent arise. And Solzhenitsyn tells that, uh, explains that in an almost phenomenological way, you know, and uh, more interesting, I think, than maybe the prose pieces where he articulates his religious convictions is this account of how um, spiritual ascent rooted in a rejection of survival of any price eventually leads Solzhenitsyn to a reaffirmation of his Christian faith. And, you know, he says at the end of that beautiful chapter um, that it was only lying there on rotting prison straw that he saw the truth that the line between good and evil lies not between parties and ideologies, nations or classes, but right through each and every heart. And he, he goes on to argue that the problem with ideological revolution is that it thinks we can eliminate evildoers and therefore eliminate evil from the world. But Solzhenitsyn says this line between good and evil is in every human heart. And um, he says, you know, the great religions of the world teach us that we can constrict evil, but we cannot expel it from the world. And uh, Solzhenitsyn saw in any ideological movement, any Manichaean movement that saw, e you know, that located evil in a specific group, guilty for who they are and not what they've done, the Jews, the Kulaks, the Christians, the merchants, or today, God knows, you know, what the woke think, that he saw this as the road to perdition, you know. And, uh, and for learning all of that, he, he says at the end of that chapter, Bless you, prison, for having been in my, in, our, in my life. But he also goes on to write a chapter called, uh, on the soul of man under uh, communism, where he says this system was so cruel, it placed such spiritual weights on vulnerable human beings. It made lie and betrayal a form of existence. That he, I think he ultimately concluded this kind of system has to be resisted. And he gives a beautiful account in uh, the third volume, the latter part of the abridgment, of the revolt at Kengir, where the prisoners took over a camp. They knew they were going to lose, but he thought in the act of rebellion, they were affirming their human dignity. They, they refused to be cowards. They, this, too, was an ascent of the soul. 
through the, you know, the, the important cardinal virtue of courage. So Solzhenitsyn uh, certainly saw that spiritual ascent was and redemptive suffering were possible in the camps, not for everyone. It's the path of the minority, but it's a real path. But he also saw that a system that cruelly tempts people to lie and betray on a daily basis, tearing families apart, betraying co-workers, repeating slogans that one knows to be utter falsehoods, denying the faith, that such a system needs to be resisted. Now, how it is to be resisted is another question, but Solzhenitsyn was not like Tolstoy, a pacifist, although um, uh, uh, he also had great qualms about the, uh, certainly rejected any indiscriminate use of violence, but he, um, um, it's very interesting because as a Christian and as a person who loved human freedom and hated totalitarian despotism, he had to wrestle with this question, what do you do? Or, you know, he's not uh, Alyosha the Baptist from One Day in the Life of the Days, but who's just happy to have the 24-year sentence so he can think about God. That's part of Solzhenitsyn, but that's not enough, you know, because, um, um, you know, human beings ultimately have to fight for a human order that respects human dignity. So that tension in Solzhenitsyn between welcoming redemptive suffering and resisting totalitarian evil is a very real tension. And it's a, a tension I think every thoughtful Christian can relate to. You mentioned how the latest edition of the Gulag Archipelago underlines the enduring significance of the work. Would another way of putting this be to say that it identifies not just the characteristics of a hard totalitarianism, such as that of the Soviet Union, but also the characteristics of a soft totalitarianism. I think that's right. And he made that, I mean, much of his critique of the West, by the way, he made very clear at the beginning of his Harvard address, he quotes the, he says, Veritas, you know, uh, uh, truth is the motto of Harvard University, or was, and he says, I come here as a friend speaking truth. And part of that truth was that there are temptations that come from the very softness of the West. You know, the temptation to, sounds a little bit like Heidegger, and that's only only in this one regard, but Solzhenitsyn speaks about excessive engrossment in everyday life. You know, Heidegger in Being in Time talks about average everydayness, where people get so caught up in, material everydayness that they lose sight of being well socialization doesn't talk like that but they lose sight of the soul they lose sight of uh, the purpose of human existence and the meaning of true happiness and uh, you know socialization was concerned that rule of law had degenerated into to legalism and he was concerned that western democracies had lost sight of the transcendent grounds of human freedom and dignity. Um, he always said, uh, and he says this in the um, uh, peroration of the Harvard Address of 1978, he doesn't want, you know, an inordinate emphasis on the soul at the expense of the body. He says, but uh, under modernity, we have gone from 
Uh, perhaps, he says, in the Christian centuries, there was a tendency, perhaps, of not giving enough due to the needs and concerns of the body. But he says, now we live with a despotism of the material against the, you know, we're excessively concerned with the body and material needs, and we've almost forgotten the human soul. So, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn, in the end, uh, endorses moderation, a balance of body and soul, um, um, but certainly a plea to Western peoples not to get so engrossed in everyday life that we lose sense of the real meaning and purpose of it. His, his final speech to at the International Academy of Philosophy, which was a Catholic uh, Philosophical Academy in Liechtenstein. Uh, it was his last great speech in the West, and he uh, he spoke there. He gave the title to that speech, We Have Ceased to See the Purpose. Purpose with a capital P, that, you know, this, an understanding of freedom that lacks purposiveness, that lacks a sense that freedom is at the service of ends and purposes that elevate the human soul. But to be neutral about good and evil or to affirm the radical autonomy of societies and individuals, I think Solzhenitsyn thought was a, a new form of the ideological lie. The Gulag Archipelago is just one of the many 20th century classics that portray totalitarianism and its effects on the soul. There was also George Orwell's 1984, Arthur Kustler's Darkness at Noon, and on a different kind of totalitarianism, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. What sets the Gulag Archipelago apart from these other literary critiques of totalitarianism? Is it Solzhenitsyn's Christianity? That's part of it, and I would say there's nothing quite like the section, The Soul and Barbed Wire. It's meditative reflection on the soul confronting soul-destroying tyranny. Um, but I would say it's it's the Gulag Archipelago, its range is much broader than the aforementioned works, works I know well and admire, and they each have their moment in any reflection on the dehumanization of human beings in the late modern world. But Solzhenitsyn's perspective is so much broader. First of all, it's partly autobiographical, his own arrest, his own experience, his own recovery of not only faith, but of belief in natural right and justice and the primacy of conscience. Um, but it's a comprehensive account of every aspect of the totalitarian experience. And that's, you know, the, 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 the horrible construction projects like the White Sea Bellamar Canal, where tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands perished in the early 30s, an account on the war on the, uh, on the peasants, uh, the aforementioned uh, discussion of the human motives of the blue caps. Uh, there's a beautiful chapter, for example, on poets in the camps. You know, you would think the last place in the world where people would give thanks, where people would uh, reflect on the, the, the givenness of the universe and the gratuity of God would be in the camps. But quite the contrary. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, he, he, memor he memorializes and immortalizes uh, these camp poets, uh, an orthodox poet named Silin and others who uh, would not be remembered except for Solzhenitsyn. And, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn has a beautiful line. He says, 
um, that the camp, the uh, in the camps, people were depersonalized, dehumanized. They had the buzz cuts. Uh, they had numbers. You know, they, uh, they you know Zek two fifty four, Zek ten ninety nine. Um, they were dirty. You know, there was an effort to destroy any human distinctiveness, any distinctive personality. But he says these poets, and maybe this is. You know, he has himself in mind with um, uh, the Gulag Archipelago. He says they're able to to restore the humanity to these depersonalized prisons. You see souls, you see faces, you see human persons. And that's what the Gulag Archipelago is. It's interesting. The subtitle is an experiment in literary or artistic investigation. It's the use of art and literature of a very high caliber uh, that's able to do things that, you know, you, you know, there's great works of history, Robert Conquest, The Great Terror and others, Anne Applebaum's Gulag of History. But they pale into significance compared to the Gulag because uh, they simply are not able to delve into the to the soul with this with anything like the. Uh, the literary power, and you mentioned Solzhenitsyn's Christian faith, and I, I said I agreed that that was a big part of the picture, but there's also much philosophical meditation in the Gulag, and the Gulag Archipelago in the end is an epic, an anti-epic about this terrible effort to destroy the human spirit, but. It, it's also a deep philosophical meditation on what is man. And uh, so I would say you put all that together and you have something uh, sui generis. Uh, Gary Saul Morrison, who's probably the best Russianist writing today, had a column, the masterpiece uh, series in the Wall Street Journal last week and uh, or a week before that, perhaps. But he called the Gulag Archipelago the greatest prose work of the 20th century. And I, I think I agree. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again and God bless.